It is a certain fact that I could continue to write and record episodes of GBNF forever, and I would quite literally never run out of stories to tell or horrors to relay. Perhaps the saddest part is that there are so many stories that nobody is able to tell because of the complete lack of information and reporting, and there are also so many crimes that remain open because of the inability to find guilty parties, lay charges, and receive convictions. This week we are going to talk about a story that is fairly well known, and that is one of those cases that just has not ever come to a resolution. This week we look at the murders of three very young girls that may or may not be connected, and the murderer or murderers has never been found. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 101 of Gone But Never Forgotten, Three Beautiful Lives Taken Way Too Soon, The Alphabet Murders. Within a two-year span, between 1971 and 1973, Rochester, New York was absolutely rocked by three young girls being murdered and sexually assaulted, and to date, those three murders have not been solved. The murders over the years have come to be known as the Alphabet Murders, or the Double Initial Murders. The reason for the nomenclature was because there were more similarities within the three murders than just the fact that all three were 10 or 11 year old girls. All three of the girls had a first name and a surname that started with the same letter. While that alone could certainly be called a chance, a fat chance if you ask me, but still a chance. The fact that all three girls had their bodies discarded near a town that started with that same subsequent letter certainly seems to point out that this was all done on purpose. Each victim was also sexually assaulted and murdered by strangulation. So, as we work through this story, it is pertinent, albeit awful. To remember that the things that were done in this case were done to preteen girls who were likely in the 4th or 5th grade at school. This sick bastard had an M.O., and he planned out and clearly even chose all of his young victims meticulously. On November 16th of 1971, a 10-year-old Puerto Rican girl named Carmen Cologne went to the pharmacy in Rochester, New York, to pick up a prescription for her grandparents. A witness at the pharmacy remembers seeing Carmen walk up to and into the pharmacy. 
Once inside, she went to store owner Jack Corbin, and she was told that the prescription she was there to pick up was not quite finished and ready yet, and that it would be ready in a few minutes. Usually, Carmen was accompanied by her grandfather on the trips to the pharmacy, but on this occasion, she had come alone. Jack remembers Carmen being incredibly antsy while she was waiting and seemingly impatient. Jack says that Carmen started to say repeatedly, I got to go, I got to go. And finally, she left the store in a hurry, and witnesses watched on as the young girl left the pharmacy and got into a car that was seemingly waiting for her close to the pharmacy. Less than an hour after Carmen was seen leaving the pharmacy in a rush, there were many people on Interstate 490 who observed a child running along the highway from a dark-colored Ford Pinto that was reversing after her. The young girl was naked from the waist down, and her arms were frantically flailing around, and she was shouting as she tried in every way she could think of to flag down a passing vehicle. The only problem was, nobody stopped. Not one person stopped when they saw a 10-year-old girl running half-naked down a highway while she was being chased by a vehicle in reverse. Not one person thought that that meant that they should stop to see if the little girl was alright. But they certainly remember what they saw and how dire it looked when they found out that a little girl was missing, and at least one witness watched on as Carmen was grabbed and forced back into the car by her abductor. This was not a quiet stretch of highway. Over 30 people were confirmed to have witnessed this incident. What was more was the fact that not one person even reported the incident to police until after Carmen's body was found two days later. The excuse that was given by most witnesses that called in was that they believed they were driving too fast on the interstate to be able to stop and do anything to help. All of that occurred at roughly 5.10 p.m. Carmen's family didn't even know yet that she was missing. Carmen would be reported as missing to the Rochester Police Department at 7.50 p.m two hours after she attempted to escape her, ad- her abductor on Interstate 490. Two days later, on November 18th of 1971, two teenaged boys from Churchill, New York, which was a very small town, were riding their bikes through neighborhoods when they happened across what they at first believed was a half-dressed mannequin lying face down in a ditch along the side of the road. As they investigated, however, they would quickly realize that what they had found was not a mannequin at all, but in fact they had found the lifeless body of Carmen Cologne. Churchill, New York is approximately 12 miles away from the pharmacy and the stretch of highway where Carmen was last seen alive. Her coat would be discovered in a culvert about 300 feet from where her body was discovered, 
and her pants were only found much later, on November 30th, close to a service road and close to that same stretch of highway where motorists had seen Carmen attempting to run for her life. Carmen had been raped. She also had a fracture to her skull and one to one of her vertebrae as well. Her cause of death, though, was manual strangulation, and her entire body was extensively scratched by someone's fingernails. As you can imagine, the public was furious. As detail emerged, people were sickened to find out the awful things that had been done to young Carmen. However, when word started to leak out that there were numerous people who had the opportunity to literally save this young girl's life, most people were beside themselves with anger. The Times Union and the Democrat and Chronicle, two of New York's newspapers at the time, combined their efforts to try and help solve the case and put together $2,500 for any information that led to the arrest and conviction of Carmen's killer. Money was added further by members of the public as well as local businesses, and the reward money climbed to roughly $6,000 U.S. That was a sizable amount of money to say the least. In today's dollars, that would be a $45,000 reward. Police had several people of interest and several suspects that they looked into and spoke with, but all of them would ultimately be cleared of any involvement in the murder. In December, the number of detectives working the case was cut back to three as things started to look bleak. In early 1972, there were five billboards put up along roads in Rochester. Each billboard had the headline, quote, Do you know who killed Carmen Cologne? Unquote. Each billboard also stated the $6,000 U.S. reward and also showed the hotline number and address for anonymous tips. All of this was done in hopes of generating some new information in the murder of Carmen, but Sadly, even though some new tips did come in, no evidence or charges were born from those efforts. As you can honestly imagine, the fact that this young girl was grabbed, not helped when people had the chance to do so, and then murdered was bad enough and hard enough on the community. But the fact that no answers, no charges, and no information was forthcoming certainly put even more people on edge. You can imagine people holding their children closer, pulling the reins in on their children's boundaries, and probably living in fear of who may be out there. Approximately 17 months later, on April 2nd of 1973, Rochester would find all of those feelings heightened even more. In East Rochester, an 11-year-old girl named Wanda Wachowicz would disappear only three blocks from her home on Avenue D. Similarly to Carmen, Wanda was out in the community and running errands when she would go missing. It was approximately 5 p.m. when Wanda headed to a deli with a to-do list from her mom, Joyce, at the store. 
Wanda was only at the deli for approximately 15 minutes, and then she was on her way home again. Bill Van Orden, who was an employee at the Delicatessen, said that he had seen Wanda at the store. She had picked up everything on her list that her mom had given to her, and then she had left. He noted that she was alone, and he would end up being one of the last people to see young Wanda alive. Another witness would report that they witnessed Wanda walking down the street with her groceries and said that she was struggling mightily with her cargo. The witness also said that there was a large brown car following Wanda as she struggled down the street. The witness said, though, that they looked away and when they looked back, both Wanda and the vehicle were gone from sight. What was interesting about that fact is that everyone that knew Wanda knew that she was a bright girl, and they believed that she would not willingly get into a vehicle with someone that she did not know. So, the belief very quickly was that Wanda must have known her abductor. Wanda's mom would report her as missing around 8 p.m. that night when she did not turn up after what mom believed to be a curious amount of time. Of course, the community and the police were instantly thinking of Carmen and a sizable search party was put together that included nearly 50 detectives. Areas around the deli, around Wanda's home, and areas where Wanda liked to play were all searched extensively. Unfortunately, neither Wanda nor any evidence of Wanda was uncovered. Sadly, the following morning, one officer was searching alone and he would come across the body of Wanda. Wanda was fully dressed and it was discovered later that she had been redressed after she was murdered. Wanda's body was discovered seven miles from Rochester near an access road in Webster. Again, with the same starting letter. Investigators believed that her abductor had driven alongside where the body was found and shoved it out of their car and down the hill to wind up where the body was eventually discovered. Her body was discovered near the side of the Iron de Croix Bay Bridge, approximately 14 hours after she was reported as missing. Young Wanda had been raped and she also had defensive wounds on her body that proved that she had been alive and had fought back against her attacker. Wanda, like Carmen, had been strangled, but it was believed that something, most likely a belt, was used to choke Wanda rather than her abductor's hands, as was done in, in the previous case. Interestingly as well, there was white cat fur that was found on the body of Wanda as well. It was reported that Wanda and a friend of hers had been walking the previous weekend together, and they had told their parents that they believed that there was a man following them as they were together. Neither girl had been able to see the man's face though, and so there was no description to go by, unfortunately. There were two key eyewitness reports that would come through the tip line that perhaps gave some information. One witness said that they saw a young girl speaking with a driver of a large brown vehicle. 
The witness said that the girl was standing outside of the passenger side of the vehicle, and the witness said that they were unable, though, to make out the driver of the vehicle at all. A second witness would say that they saw a young red-headed girl being forced into a light-colored Dodge Dart on Conkey Avenue in Rochester. Publicly, the police would state that because of differences in the two cases, they did not believe that the murder of Wanda and the murder of Carmen were connected. However, it was clear that there were people working the case and working in the department that were not so sure. A detective who had worked Carmen's case would be reassigned to Wanda's case, seemingly to try and find similarities and look at the second case with eyes from the first one. Then, on November 26th of 1973, just barely two years after Carmen had disappeared, there would be another disappearance of a young girl in Rochester. 11-year-old Michelle Mainza had already been having an awful day at school as she had been bullied, something that sadly was a big part of her life, seemingly on most days. As school let out, Michelle wanted to do something nice for her mom. She knew that her mom had lost her purse just a few days earlier at a store that was close by to her school. When the bell rang, Michelle left the school to go and see if she could locate the bag for her mom. Her classmates watched as Michelle headed in that direction. Heartbreakingly, it would come out later that on her walk to the plaza, Michelle actually was stopped by her uncle, who was driving, and he offered to give her a ride and help her. Michelle politely declined the ride and the help, though, and carried on along her solo path. After 3.30 p.m., only about 15 minutes after Michelle was last seen leaving the school, a tan vehicle was seen speeding down Ackerman Street in Rochester. One witness said that she distinctively saw Michelle inside of the vehicle as it sped past, and Michelle was crying. Later, around 5.30 p.m., that same car was seen on the side of the road with a flat tire, and the witness stopped to see if they could help the driver. The witness approached and noticed that the driver of the vehicle was grabbing onto Michelle's arm very tightly to keep her at his side. The witness left the scene quickly because they noticed when they approached the man that the man had forced Michelle back into the car roughly and then went out of his way to stop the witness from being able to see the license plates on the vehicle. Two days later, the volunteer fire chief for the Walworth Volunteer Fire Department made a discovery that he was not prepared for. In a ditch alongside Eddie Road in Macedon, New York, he found a young girl's body which was fully dressed. The autopsy would confirm everyone's worst nightmare, that the body belonged to young Michelle. Michelle had been sexually assaulted, and she had suffered from blunt force trauma. She, like Wanda, had been strangled from behind this time with likely a rope of some kind, rather than a belt or hands. There was also a lot of white cat fur found on Michelle's clothing, much like Wanda. Interestingly, during the autopsy, Michelle's stomach contents 
would be analyzed, and it was determined that she had eaten a hamburger and fries approximately one hour before she had been murdered. That information was able to corroborate a tip that said that Michelle had been seen eating at Carol's Restaurant in Penfield, New York. That tip would actually come with a fairly good description of the man that was with Michelle. The man was dark-haired and a Caucasian male. He appeared to be between the ages of 25 and 35, and he stood at approximately 6 feet tall, weighing approximately 165 pounds. At the time, he was wearing a dark ski vest and jeans that were tucked into a pair of brown cowboy boots. The man had a short beard, and he had long, dirty fingernails. The description of this man was the same description of the man that was at the flat tire scene with Michelle about one hour later. At this point, things that were said to the public started to change a little bit. When certain detectives were asked if they believed that the murders of Wanda, Carmen, and Michelle were connected, they started to allude at the very least to the fact that there was a strong possibility. The captain of the Rochester police said that he was not yet convinced himself, but he believed that there was a strong possibility that the person behind all three murders was indeed the same man. There were, of course, many people who believed strongly the other way, that the three murders were not at all connected. There certainly were similarities through with throughout all three cases, though. All three girls were close in height, close in age to some extent, and they were not very popular at school and didn't have a lot of friends. There also was the fact that all three girls came from poor Catholic families that lived in the poorer areas of Rochester. I think that those similarities certainly point out to there being some sort of connection because it appears to be quite enough for a pattern in victim. It seems to me that this man would have had to follow these girls a little bit before he grabbed them. First of all, he needed to find the type of girl that wasn't always with other people, so he couldn't just pounce and hope for the best. No random victims by the scenes of it. The other thing is the letters. In my mind, there's absolutely no way that he or they grabbed three girls by accident who had first names and surnames that started with the same letter, and then their bodies were dumped in ditches of towns that shared that same letter. For me and my definitely uneducated eyes, it seems that you really have two options. A copycat killer or one killer. It seems pretty cut and dry to me at least. It was that line of thinking also that led investigators and others to believe that there may be some kind of connection between the girls and social services or the school system. Someone that would have access to enough information that they would find all of the specific things that they were looking for. Further to that end, all three of the girls were kidnapped in the early afternoon while doing some sort of errand, whether that was self-imposed or for their family. While on those errands, in all three stories, there seems to also be the eyewitness accounts of a complete stranger 
in the area, and then seemingly situations where the girls approached vehicles willingly in the first place and had conversations with an unidentified person. For these three girls to all do this, though, also seems to point to the fact that the girls did all know their abductor on some level, enough to trust them to at least approach the vehicle. There were certainly some differences in the cases as well, namely in Carmen's, that people do point to when they believe that there may not be a connection. Carmen was of course manually strangled, and she was also not redressed after she was raped and murdered. Carmen also suffered a fractured skull and vertebrae. While I was reading different accounts and beliefs around the differences, I couldn't help but to personally just feel like the killer might have been perfecting his rituals here as he went along. Perhaps, for example, he realized that he didn't want to watch his victim as they were strangled, which manual strangulation obviously dictates that a killer needs to do. With the composite drawing, police focused all of their attention on the public and trying to get tips regarding who this man was or who this man might be. There was a telephone hotline that was dedicated just to the alphabet murders and that manhunt. Investigators were operating under the assumption that this one man was responsible now for all three murders, and this was the best lead that they had ever had, and they ran with it. No credible suspect, though, was ever located. Over 800 potential suspects were interviewed and interrogated about the case, but the man or the people who were behind these three murders were never caught. And now, over 50 years, obviously the prospects of catching the killer and bringing them to justice are slim or none. There are always hopes, though, that new evidence or new information could come to light and change everything for the people involved. Throughout the years, though, there have certainly been a lot of people of interest. I guess that's to be expected when you interview over 800 people as potential suspects. As we generally do, I'm going to look at some of the suspects with you that were investigated as a part of this case. As I said earlier, the case with Carmen Cologne is the one case that many point to as an outlier from the other two murders. Her case did have a very strong suspect who had a lot of circumstantial evidence that pointed at him. But investigators, try as they might, were never able to connect all of the dots enough to charge him. The man in question was Carmen's paternal uncle, Miguel Cologne. The familial structure here was a little bit weird. When Miguel's brother, who was Carmen's father, and Carmen's mom split up, it was Miguel, Carmen's uncle, who had gotten close to her and the two had started a relationship. Miguel was looked at for a few reasons. Just before Carmen was abducted and murdered, Miguel was known to have had purchased a vehicle that looked just like the one that was reported to have reversed on the highway after Carmen as she ran away half-naked. That vehicle was searched not long after Carmen's murder, but it was found that the vehicle had been thoroughly cleaned inside 
and inside of the trunk especially, in the time since Carmen was murdered. Investigators did find a doll in the vehicle as well that had belonged to Carmen, but her family did say that she had been in the vehicle frequently and may have just left that behind. So the question is whether this is a man who washed his new car around the time that his niece was murdered, or this was a man who needed to try and rid his vehicle of some kind of evidence. I guess my only question would be that if you knew that you had done all of those terrible things to your niece, and you took the time to clean out the car painstakingly, wouldn't you also get rid of her toy that was in the car? A few days after Carmen's body was discovered, a friend of Miguel did say that he had told him that he needed to flee the country because he had done something awful in Rochester. Then, just four days after Carmen was killed, Miguel did in fact move to Puerto Rico. That's all certainly seems pretty damning, that's for sure. When you look at what we know as true crime fans, I'll call us, the cleaning of a vehicle and the fact that he fled the country are certainly two signals that we're told to watch for in this kind of situation. Investigators would actually go all the way to San Juan, Puerto Rico in March of 1972 with the intention of questioning Miguel. But local newspapers there had reported on the fact that police were there to question him and Miguel fled. On March 26th, Miguel finally surrendered himself to authorities and agreed to be extradited to Rochester for questioning. Even though Miguel didn't have any alibis that could cover for his whereabouts when Carmen was taken and murdered, there was also, as I said, no evidence that could prove that he was guilty. There, were no physical, there was no physical evidence that proved that Miguel was indeed the guilty party, and as such, he was released, and Miguel would commit suicide in 1991 at the age of just 44, after he shot and wounded both his brother and his own wife. The other three men that I'm going to briefly talk about here are three men who were considered as strong people of interest in the alphabet murders as a whole. The first was a man named Dennis Termini. Dennis is, was a 25-year-old member of the Rochester Fire Department at the time, and nowadays he is better known as a serial offender who was dubbed the Garage Rapist. The garage rapist had sexually assaulted at least 14 teenage girls and young women between 1971 and 1973. Dennis was also known to have owned a vehicle that was very close to the one that was seen in the three abductions. Only five weeks after Michelle was murdered, on New Year's Day in 1974, Dennis also had tried to kidnap a girl at gunpoint and he would ultimately run away when the teenager screamed at the top of her lungs. He then would try again to kidnap a teenager on the same day, but he was seen and pursued by police, which ultimately caused Dennis to commit suicide by shooting himself in the head. Investigators would do a forensic examination of Dennis's vehicle, of course, after his death, and they did confirm that there were traces of white cat fur inside of the vehicle. 
Dennis's body was exhumed in January of 2007 because many believed that he was the person who had committed the alphabet murders. A DNA sample was taken from Dennis and compared to the semen samples that were left from Wanda's body. There was no match, and that therefore proved that at the very least, Dennis had not been the person who had raped Wanda. Carmen and Michelle, unfortunately, had not had any forensic evidence retrieved from their bodies, and as such, there is no evidence to compare Dennis's DNA with. Another person of interest in the case is Kenneth Alessio Bianchi, who is a serial killer, kidnapper, and rapist who is known for committing the Hillside Strangler murders, which were committed by he and his cousin Angelo Buono Jr. in Los Angeles, California. Kenneth also killed two more women in Washington on his own and is serving a life sentence in Washington State Penitentiary. He also became a suspect in the Alphabet murders because not only was he known to have lived in Rochester at the time of the three murders, he was known to have worked close to at least the first two crime scenes. Kenneth was also known to have been driving a vehicle that was similar to one of the vehicles that was described in these cases. Kenneth was never charged with the Alphabet murders, and he has actually strongly denied any involvement in those three murders, and has even tried to have investigators remove his name as a person of interest in this case. Kenneth was denied parole on August 18th of 2010, and will be eligible to reapply for parole in 2025. Finally, in April of 2011, a 77-year-old man named Joseph Nasso was arrested in Nevada for the murders of four women in California that were committed between 1977 and 1994. In those four cases, the women that were murdered had first names that started with the same letter that their surname started with. Joseph is known to have lived in Rochester in the early 1970s, and while he was initially mentioned as a person of interest in the case, his DNA was ran against that of Wanda as well, and his DNA was not a match in that case, at the very least. Joseph went to trial in June of 2013 when he was formally charged with the four California alphabet murders. On August 20th of 2013, he was convicted of each account of murder, and on November 22nd of 2013, he was sentenced to death. And of course, over 50 years later, this is where we are with this case. We can hold out hope that DNA or evidence or a confession of some kind will come forward so that these three families of Carmen, Wanda, and Michelle can at least get some final answers and some semblance of closure for the loved ones that they lost in the 1970s to a monster who has yet to be unmasked. If you're out there and listening and know anything that could potentially help finally close one or all of these cases, please call the Rochester Police Department at 585 428 6720. 
Do you think that all of these cases are intertwined? Do you believe that one man killed all three of these young girls, or do you think that there is more than one monster that has escaped prosecution here? Hop on over to X, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, or our Patreon, and let me know what you think about this case and where the facts lead you and what they make you feel. And of course, hop back onto your favorite podcast platform again next week and tune in for another episode of Gone But Never Forgotten. Until then, please be well and be better. Thank you so much for listening.